Hey everyone, welcome back to the Micro Stark Show. How are you guys doing? Today we're going to talk about the simple path to becoming a millionaire or paths to becoming a millionaire because there are many different paths that will get you there. And over a long enough period of time, it's almost impossible not to hit millionaire if you follow these steps. And that's if you have a basic job, uh, you know, as long as you work full time at something and follow these steps, you'd be a millionaire. So it's pretty darn simple. But uh, we will also do on the second half of the stream, like I always do, live every single Wednesday from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, the live Q&A. So jump in the bottom and uh, say hello and throw in your comments and I'll be happy to, uh, to answer them. If you have any questions too, in the bottom, free, fun, let's do it. So, hey Andrew, how you doing? Hey sir, how you doing? Welcome to the stream. Justin, good to see you on as well. Today, we're talking about the paths to millionaire, and then we'll do what we always do, which is just, I'll riff off your guys' questions and comments, and we'll go wherever this takes us, you know, free, you know, financial advice or real estate advice or whatever you guys want to talk about. We'll just go there and talk about it, but probably centered around financial independence in some uh, way. And I see some good questions already popping up here, and probably gonna get a little political with that question there, but I won't read it yet. I'll first do my little preamble which is that I haven't talked to you guys in a week. And today I just thought, hey, um, I saw a post on Facebook about someone was just posting the path to millionaire. And I, I'd heard it before, you know, there's so many different ways that you can you can ride the, the path of the train to millionaire. One is like simply saving 10% of whatever you earn and investing that at like a 7% return. And in a 25 year period, you hit millionaire. So that's if you make like a little bit more than minimum wage here in, uh, in Ontario. So that's that's one path. And it can take a little bit longer than 25 years depending on the rate of return that you use. I think they're using 10, but anyone can get about 7% if they invest in public equities. Another really easy way that's my favorite that I liked on this post was if you just go and buy two $300,000 properties at 5% down. So buy the first property, $300,000 you need at 5% down, that's $15,000. So you get $15,000 saved up and you buy a house. Then you buy a second house. Then you do nothing for like 20 or 25 years, pay off the mortgages, and even if they make no cash flow, if they make cash flow bonus, but you just literally pay down the mortgages and let them appreciate, and at a 3% appreciation rate, which is actually historically very low, uh, most of the markets you know, where I'm from, the last five years have done 100% in five years, but let's look at a long-term picture of like 3%. So it's taking a long time for the houses to double in value. And if you just pay down the mortgage balance over a 20 year period and you let the house appreciate, and let's pretend there's no cash flow, which is like anti the micro start strategy. People know that I hate buying real estate that doesn't produce positive cash flow. That's stupid. That's a more of a liability than an asset. But if you just, just did that, let's not factor in the rental income because if there's rental income, Every five years, you can buy another house. And so you'd be a multi-millionaire just buying two houses and reinvesting whatever you get from those two houses. You'd be, you'd be a millionaire. It's so simple. Like, if you just go out right now and buy, the average house in London's like a little over 500,000. You buy 10 average properties in London, Ontario, where I live. You put 20% down on all 10 of those properties. You're like looking at less than a million bucks in equity to start. And after 25 years, your initial investment at the current historical 25 year average in London will put you at around six to eight million 
net worth. So you wanna be a decamillionaire? You go buy 10 properties and you wait. You wanna be even richer? You buy more properties and you wait. So it's pretty crazy how real estate is so powerful. And let's unpack that for a second because there's a few things at play here. One is it assumes you use leverage. So you go and get a bank loan to buy the property. It assumes you don't go and use all your money in cash and buy real estate. Because if a property appreciates at 3% every year, let's say it goes from a $300,000 valuation over a 20 year period to 700,000 valuation. That's at like a 3% growth rate. And that'll happen over time, right? Houses double in value every 10, 15, 20 years, depending on how fast your market's growing. In some markets, every four or five years, houses are doubling in value in the last five or 10 years. But again, I think that's a bit of a bull market. I think that's not indicative of future returns. You know, they say past returns equal future returns. And I feel like that's not indicative of future. What we've seen in the last five years, I think is an anomaly. If we look at you know the 80s and 90s returns, we'll see that there's been times where it's been flat, where it's been slightly negative. And so let's just assume a three, three, 4% growth rate for real estate, pretty conservative, slightly outpacing inflation. That's about what we, we can expect from real estate. And if you lever that up, and let's say you do a 5% down payment, you're levered up 20 to one. So 5% down payment, if you're gonna hold the property forever, then remember, I, I hate 5% down here in Canada, CMHC and Genworth and all the companies that provide the private mortgage insurance, the PMI, they're very expensive. They take your entire 5% down payment as a fee up front. Whether you refinance it, whatever happens later, they take it as a fee up front and, and amortize it against you. So it costs a lot. But if you're gonna hold the property forever, you don't care. You've got access to this property. You control this, say it's a $300,000 asset. You control this, or $500,000 asset. You control this half a million dollar asset. And if it's 5% down, that's $25,000. So 25 grand down payment allows you to control a half million dollar asset. And you can use a real estate asset to generate cash flow. And so that's awesome when you can own a half million dollar property that can help you generate positive cash flow. But even if it doesn't generate positive cash flow, which it will, but let's just say that it didn't, it will generate appreciation for you at a 20 to one rate of return. So a 5% appreciation actually gives you a 100% return on your down payment. So every time the market goes up 5%, 5% real estate market goes up, your down payment at 5% down doubles. So you can see how quickly at 5% down, or if you bought a property at 20% down and then refinance part of that money out through a burr, or let's say you added some value through renovation and refinance some of your capital out, we're left with five or 10% of the property, then you can imagine your return on invested capital will double you know, pretty quickly, right? So that's where it's awesome with real estate is leverage. And that's what makes real estate so attractive. Leverage can be scary when you're taking on debt against assets that might not go up in value. Real estate's a pretty tried and true thing, produces cash flow that self-services the debt, and then there's also a, tends to be appreciation that outpaces inflation. And so when you're levered like that, it's just super attractive. Um, and so as much as I hate landlording, you guys know, you've watched my journey over the last, geez, we're coming up on three years, two and a half years I've had this channel. You've watched my progression go from you know acquiring a ton of real estate assets for other people and for myself, but a lot for other people, and then having to manage all that, see how much of a headache that was, and then see me sort of sell off a lot of the properties. And I've, I've been actively selling off most of my partnerships because I don't want partners. I don't want to have assets where I don't have 100% control and where I'm not getting 100% of everything involved. And that doesn't mean that I won't take on debt because I will still borrow money to buy real estate. I, I believe in securing against the property where I have full control and I don't have any equity partners. I, I still will acquire assets where I'm not the principal 
manager. So I can own 100% of the property, but I outsource the ownership. And sometimes that means selling a percentage of profit to a manager. Sometimes that means a fee base, but you run your numbers and you make it work. Anyway, if you can acquire a decent portfolio, let's say you go out and acquire five properties, five rental properties is not that hard to do. Any average Canadian making 40, $50,000 a year over a five or 10 year period could acquire a property a year. Not hard to do, you know, down payments like if you're buying an average $300,000 property, you could, you know, put 5% down on your first one, 15 grand. Second one, maybe you put up 60 grand down payment. Again, these things can be saved for over one property every couple of years. Once you have a small base of, of real estate properties, you gotta imagine that five properties, let's say three to $500,000 is a million and a half to, you know, it could be even more in, in total real estate holdings. So if that appreciates, 3% a year over 20 next 20 years, you're looking at a three or $4 million real estate portfolio and all of that gain is yours because you use debt instead of equity to take the deal down. The bank doesn't get a cut of the appreciation. They get a fixed interest payment every month and hopefully the tenant pays that interest anyway. So all the appreciation is yours. And it's the beautiful thing is you didn't put, you didn't put all the money up to close the property, the bank did. So anyway, that was one of the simple paths to millionaire. It's the reason that, you know, I've been getting some comments recently against my video for, you know, about talking about anti-landlord. And I'm not necessarily anti-landlord, I'm anti-landlord in Ontario. And I'm anti, at my stage in the game, I'm not going to talk to a tenant. I'm not interested in, in being a property manager, or getting involved in any of that. I would like to hire someone to do that role, right? But that doesn't mean that it doesn't still make sense for people to do this, right? I think that it's one of those things where buying businesses too can be fantastic. I like real estate because it's a safe, tangible asset with a business you know, the market could turn on a dime and your business could go bankrupt, but it's hard to screw up real estate. Even if you're the worst possible real estate owner, typically the market will save you, right, long-term. If you have no cash flow and everything goes poorly and tenant destroys your property, probably appreciation will fix all of that if you're levered investing in real estate. Now, if you're owning real estate in cash or you have a lot of the equity paid down, that's terrible. Sell your real estate right now because real estate is not a good asset class to hold in cash gives you a 3% return. That's terrible for the risk level. I believe you'd be better off, you know, in a, in a secured mortgage or, you know, investing in something else. So anyway, forget the rest of my points, but I see some questions coming up. So I'll jump into the questions and then I'll jump back out to the other paths to millionaire. I think the couple of them were, uh, there was the saving method, which is, you know, the tried and true way. It's the guaranteed way. There's the investing in the stock market method. There's buying real, a couple, couple of rental, two rental properties or two properties, one you live in, one rental property, and just waiting for 20 years, then you're a millionaire. Um, there's the path where you, from 18 to 24, save half of all you earn, live like a student, and then go ahead and spend everything you earn. Keep that savings set aside and let it grow. And you'd be surprised that if you just save from 18 to 24, you'd be a millionaire by 60. If you just stop saving 24 onwards and just was like live like an idiot and spent everything you made. If you just started early and put a little bit away, that will grow to an enormous amount of wealth. The power being the eighth wonder of the world, compound interest. So that's the beautiful thing is that the path to millionaire is super simple. If you just take action now and let time stay on your side and keep it invested somewhat smartly, at least be an average investor. You don't have to be better than average, just average. Good evening, Andrew. Acer, welcome. Justin, good to see you on. Andrew says, for fire, wealth building and investments, Trump or Biden? Oh, geez, I don't know. Um, I mean, there's a lot of ways you can unpack that, I think, Andrew. Um, I, I don't really like either of the candidates, to be honest. Uh, but I'm, again, I'm not an American, so I don't follow a lot of the politics. Typically speaking, 
Republican performs slightly better for the stock market over the long term and over the short term, slightly better as well than Democrat. But it depends on so many factors. The biggest thing that the real estate market, the stock market, the whole world needs is stability. So whoever provides the most stability is who you want in office. Who is going to stabilize the economy and be rational, right? Um, from a public policy perspective, Republicans tend to be pro-hawk, pro-laying the markets kind of free float. Democrats tend to be more legislative, tend to be more, um, you know, sort of controlling, like the government arm comes in and sort of regulates things. That can be good for certain sectors, not good for other sectors. As an example, like if you're a fracking guy or an oil guy, or, you know, you're about manufacturing, you might prefer a Trump, uh, you know, type Republican in office. If you were, you know, pro, like you were a solar panel company or some sort of eco environmental type, you might prefer like a Democrat. Uh, their policy would probably be better for you. If you're the bottom half from an income perspective, you probably prefer Democrat. Uh, if you're top half of income earners, you probably prefer a Republican. From a monetary policy, economic policy perspective, that's who the parties tend to cater to. Uh, to be top half, you have to make like, it's not hard to be top half in, in the US. It's like, I think it's like $30,000 or more in your top half. Like to be top 1%, it only takes like slightly in the six figures. So you'd be surprised how many people will vote against what is good for them. Oh, we have a super chat. Hey, thank you, Anthony. Appreciate the $10 Canadian super chat. Can you provide some tips on constructing a legal basement suite cheaply? The going rate is about $100,000 to do the conversion, but I see you've been able to do it for about half that. Anthony, it depends. Um, there have been times where I've been able to achieve that goal, and there have been times where, you know, I've run into things too, where there's been major foundation leaks, and it's ended up costing me a ton too, even with all of the experience that I have. Part of getting a really good deal, Anthony, and because Anthony super chatted for all those people who are following, if you super chat, your question gets priority and it gets a nice long answer right when you super chat. So go ahead and super chat. Appreciate that. But it keeps the channel alive. It is the revenue source for this YouTube channel. <laughs> uh, the ads give me less than a, I think it's like half a penny per ad that gets watched and not many ads get watched. So uh, it doesn't make much, a couple of bucks. But so thank you. Uh, back to the question. So constructing a legal basement suite cheaply. There are lots of ways you could save on cost and still achieve your goal of having a legal basement suite, right? As an example, if the suite, if you're buying, looking to buy a property to convert to a legal suite, look for one that already has a finished basement. In many cases, if the ceilings are already intact, the walls are already intact, a lot of the inspections that are required to make it legal are waived. So you don't have to do an inspection for framing if you're not changing any framing. You don't have to do any inspection for insulation if you're not changing the insulation. Uh, again, on the ceiling, in most cases, you can add interconnected smoke alarms in the bedrooms and then connect them to the upper unit for the basement suite conversion and not have to change the drywall. Existing half-inch drywall passes where interconnected smoke alarms are added and certain provisions are met. And assuming like if there's piping or whatever, you have to use fire caulking around the pipes and things like that. There's some small nuances, but that could save you. You know, in some cases you'd get a legal duplex for like five or 10 grand or a legal secondary dwelling unit for like five or 10 grand in some cases, because the finished basement's there, it's not an apartment, you throw in a kitchen where there wasn't one before and everything else is already finished, so you just put in kind of smoke alarms in. You gotta, you maybe you have to repair some of the drywall or fish some, get an electrician who's gonna hate you because they're fishing wire in finished walls, they're gonna hate it. But that's, that could be part of it too, right? 
um, as part of saving those costs is finding an electrician who's willing to do that. And so you don't have to, you can keep the ceiling intact. Now it depends, there's a lot of different nuances and things to that, but that's one of the biggest savings is finding a property where the ceilings are intact and you don't plan to change the floor plan any drastic or major way. That's my absolute favorite way to duplex is find something that's, you got two rooms and, and a living room in the basement. You're like, geez, this living room's huge. It could also have laundry and a kitchen in here. And then all I need to do is have a plumbing inspection to tie off this stack that's right here in the living room and put it in a kitchen. And so maybe you have to run an extra wire or something and maybe some, make some small cuts in the drywall, but stay from the ceilings being fully intact. And then maybe it's not that much work. You can get a legal suite converted relatively cheaply. Uh, the other ways that you can do it just from like a cost saving perspective when it comes to construction would be, um, okay, let's think about this. So if you were to, instead of spending a hundred grand to someone to do all the work, you could take on the role of project manager. You could say, I will hire the demolition guy. I will hire the framer. I will hire the drywall border. I will hire the mutter and taper to do all the taping repairs. I will hire the plumber. I will hire the electrician. I will hire the painter. I will hire the finisher who does trim and you know kitchen cabinets put in. Uh, and usually the, the finisher will also put like the backsplash in. You might have to get a tile guy to do that if you're gonna do like in a, in a shower, you might have to put a, you could put a plastic surround in over top of the existing tub and it'll look beautiful. Like bath fitters does it all the time. It's like a thousand bucks and you put it over top of a nasty tub and it looks brand new. Um, so lots of affordable ways to save money all along the way. But that's the best one is to go get three quotes for each trade. Go get three boarders to come in and say, hey, how much to do all the drywall work in here? And if it's like 500 bucks or a thousand bucks, you might save a lot. Whereas the general contractor might quote you, you know, it might cost him 60 or 70 to get the work done. And he's baking in 30 or 40 for himself and for contingency and et cetera and so forth. So you can save a lot of money by being that person who pays all the individual trades, who orchestrates each individual trade's job. And if you find you know, midnight workers, I call them, or, you know, people doing side hustle jobs. So you find the plumber who's a plumber nine to five, but he's open to do some cash jobs. And you just have one, it's your own basement, right? So you're like, ah, come and do the plumbing. And he's a licensed plumber. You have him come on the weekend. He's like, if I can make 500 bucks, I'm happy to come on Saturday and get it done. There's electricians, electricians be careful. You know, you, you want to find a licensed electrician. Um, but maybe you can work out a deal with a licensed master electrician who will pull a permit and do it properly. If electrical don't mess around because people can die. Um, but you might be able to find a deal and I've been able to find these where master electricians will do deals for you like 50 bucks an hour cash or half cash, half on the books and stuff. So you can find deals that way um, that I've seen, you know, people save good money that way. I've another great way to save money, find someone to pull the wire at like 20 bucks an hour they'll, they'll, or like at least poke all the holes. If you if you got an unfinished basement and you're redoing all the ceilings and everything and it's a more extensive basement renovation, there's a lot of wire that has to go through every single joist or every single stud. Have someone go with the, a one inch, you know, whole bit on their drill and drill through all the holes for the electrician. So the electrician already has a little wires pulled. They're just making the connections to the panel and the connections to each and every box and making sure it's all to code. But if all the holes were already done for them, that would save them. In some cases, like you could have an electrician there all day, just drilling holes and pulling wire. And so you can have an electrician instead check all that work over and have a $20 an hour guy do the exact same thing. Cause you, any monkey can pull wire from here to there and drill holes through wood. That part's easy. The hard part's the connections and how high to put the boxes. Let the electrician do all of that. So tell the electrician, go and hammer the boxes in everywhere you want them. And all of the guy pull the wire from the panel all the way there and staple it all and do all the all the hard stuff. And you can get a, the other guys who have been electrician apprentices or something before, they switch trades. And so they have an understanding of electrical, but so they know what they're doing. They're not an idiot that's gonna you know 
put a staple through a wire or something. But maybe you don't even want them to staple. Maybe you just have to literally pull the wire through the holes. And you show them how to do it carefully so they don't rip the jackets off the wire. But that kind of stuff can be huge for you saving money, right? That could be a 15,000 electrical job down to $1,000 to one guy to pull the wire and 2,000 for your electrician. You save thousands of dollars, that's a small hack. Other things you can do, um, you know, find, I used to find flooring guys who would do a dollar a square foot for install on the labor side. And I'd find deals on, you know, Vinyl Click, it's my favorite, put it everywhere. And uh, it was like, geez, a dollar, dollar 50 maybe a square foot, you can find deals on, on vinyl plank. One Kijiji, see what people are selling. You can buy a shipment of, of vinyl plank, pretty cheap. And it's best if you don't have any transitions at all. It's even cheaper. Just run the whole flooring throughout all the unit, no transitions. Transitions are like 10 or 15 bucks, plus labor to install them. Just do the flooring continuous throughout, if at all possible. And it looks better too. So there's some tips, that's a brain dump. I'm sure I've got a million more up in here, but that's all that came to mind at first thought wherever you can find ways to save money, maybe you send in a guy to clean up after the trades. You say, hey, you don't have to clean up after yourself and they'll give you a discount because they don't have to come back and an electrician when he's done, he's got a million little off cuts and wires everywhere. The drywall guy's got a million scraps everywhere. You can get a good deal on a guy that doesn't clean up after themselves because cleaning up, none of the trades want to clean up after themselves. Maybe you come in after each trade is done and clean up so the next trade is a nice clean site to work on. Clean sites, trades char charge less. So keep your site clean. Uh, lots of pro tips like that that can save you a lot of money. All right, back up to the top. Uh, wealth building and investments. Um, you know, I think that, um, yeah, I, I'll drop the, uh, the Trump or Biden thing. I, I don't know. Uh, either way, it doesn't really affect me greatly. I think economically speaking, Trump is more pro-economy now. I think Biden's more economy... 20 years from now. So I don't know. As a business guy, Trump, Trump did fairly well um, in his career. He's had, you know, some downsides, but he's been smart about how he got things done. And he's the kind of guy that can get things done. He is crazy as well. Like some of the stuff that he posts and I don't know. Um, I don't know. I don't give an endorsement to either. I, I don't know. Biden seems pretty old and pretty socialist. So they both seem pretty terrible. William says, happy Wednesday, Mike. Happy Wednesday, William. Victor says, hello. Hello. D. How to says, good evening, Mr. Rosehart. Jordan says, hello, Mike. Thanks for doing the show. No problem. Happy to help. Mr. Michael says, hey, Mr. London, how are you and your family? We're good. Thank you for asking. Consistent question every week. Love it. Oh. Hey, Aiden, how you doing? 599 Super Chat. Thank you. Appreciate that. Nicholas says, invest in SE and net stock both might double. I don't know. I, I haven't been looking into that, but I'll take a look. I am going to get into uh, Irwin's stock hacking and options course. And I think that actually, now that I'm on that note, from as an options trader, I would be pro-Trump big time. And I plan to get into some, some pretty big options trading. I'm going to experiment for you guys and track my results and then share with you guys how that goes with the stock hacking and the options trading. Um, but I will say, and by the way, there's another $10 super chat I'm going to get to in just a second here and it gets priority. Uh, I am going to say that Trump is pro trader, pro options trader, because every time Trump tweets something like not going to work with the Dems on whatever, the market goes haywire and there's tons of volatility and traders make their money in the spread. They live in the spread. And so whenever there's volatility, even if the market's going up or down or whatever, or, or like flat, 
the volatility is where you make the money as a trader, right? On the, the highs and the lows. So Trump's really good for options traders. They're doing really well right now um, because there's so much instability. So in some ways, as an options trader, I'll do better with Trump in power. So I guess personally, I'd be selfishly vote, voting for like a Republican, Demo, um, Republican um, Trump. So I, I'm not American though, so I don't get a vote. doesn't even matter. Okay, Jamal Horn says, uh, can you discuss private businesses as an investor? Assuming you buy them, how does financing work? At what point in the real estate investing adventure would you recommend private business with active 60K salary? Great question. Uh, because you super chatted, I appreciate the super chat, thank you. Uh, because of the super chat, you get priority in the questioning answering period. That's just the way it works. And then I'll go back to the top. And if I get through all the questions today in the time allotted, I will. Uh, okay, so discussing private businesses as an investor. Yeah, so as an investor, private businesses are fantastic because they're not publicly regulated or publicly traded. And so you're not competing against all of the other you know, people in the open market. So when a business is publicly traded, you've got sharks in the institutional side who are analyzing the hell out of it. That's their job, they're analysts, right? Who are trying to arbitrage the hell out of it, who are trying to find out, you know, what the value is. They're trying to, you know, pitch it to other investors. There's a bunch of dumb money pouring in. And so you can have irrationality. You can have, you know, this perfect market theory that believes that like the market's completely rational and that this, you know, the per markets are perfect. But in the private world, markets aren't perfect. Joe sells his business, his plumbing business for $250,000, even when it's worth 500 because he couldn't find a buyer. This kind of stuff happens all the time. And so it's one of those things where in the private world, you can find insane deals. There is no, as far as I know, there's no insider trading in the private world. If you have information that someone else doesn't have as a buyer interested in a private business, you have an edge. If you go drive by the business and talk to customers and whatever, and do all your due diligence, you can find an edge on a private business and exploit that and buy the business and you know presumably make a huge profit. With private businesses, you can be in full control. Public businesses, you're not in control, right? So that's why I love private businesses. They're fantastic opportunities. I'm talking about, you know, your small, you know, distribution company that's got five, 10 employees, your small, you know, contracting company, your small pest control company, your small uh, mechanical company, your small, you know, service cleaning business or whatever. There's businesses everywhere that have like under 25, under 30 employees, just a small couple of million dollar business that you can grab for like some of these businesses you'll see pop up. I used to see them all the time. We were looking at, an, look at one that I didn't end up buying in Toronto. It was a, it was a, like a tool and die type manufacturing business and they made like little widgets. I'm not going to talk about what they were, but like stupid little screwball widget things that they sold to large manufacturing companies. And they were doing, like, let's just say hypothetically, that company was doing $4 million in, in sales. I don't know what they're doing. I'm just throwing out a random number. I do know, but I, I can't say. Uh, and let's say they're on that, they're doing a 20% margins. They're making like 600,000. Then they have, you know, the owner's drawing down like 400,000 for themselves and they got some staff, whatever. Those kind of businesses pop up all the time. Business brokers put those businesses up for sale. Now, when the owner walks away, almost always the owner's retiring, you know, they're moving to another country or they want to want to get out of the business. So whatever reason they want to get out, you want to find out what that reason is. But if all things add up and they're actually just retiring, because by the way, a lot of baby boomers own businesses in Southwestern Ontario and they have to exit at some point. They've been in the business for 25 years. The problem is when they exit, what is the business worth? When they disappear, how many customers leave? How many employees leave? What happens to the business once they're gone? And what kind of plan can you put in place to basically ensure that it's a smooth update between 
um, you know, when they leave a smooth transition from when they leave to when they uh, basically, you know, the new person comes and takes over. Hopefully it's you or someone you've, you bring a partner in or you hire someone as a general manager to run the business. That's the most ideal way is you hire someone, put them in place, or you have a partner, you put them in place, you give them a piece of the equity, or you just pay them a salary or whatever. And you as the new owner carry on the business. You make some tweaks to the business to make it more efficient. Ideally, you find ways to cut costs or find ways to grow the business. Or you could just be buying it and looking for a cash on cash return. Business owners typically, when they're buying a business and when they're selling a business, are looking for to sell at about a three multiple. So you get paid back in three years in full. That's typically what you're looking for from net operating income when you buy a business. And so if you're, and you can lever up to buy businesses. We did, we bought our business. You, I've heard of stories where, and in I've seen this with a friend where they bought a business and they refinanced the business six months later and they put a new uh, secure line against the business, against the business's income, et cetera, and sales for more than they bought the business for. So they bought the business for, I think it was 25% down, then they refinanced it and they were zero down in the business. So you can own a business that's producing half a million dollars a year in income and be fully uh, refinanced out. And the second part of your question, and the reason why I love private businesses, and you can't really do this. The reason I love private businesses so much is because of that, that you can go buy, the industry standard is payback in three years. And in some cases, business owners, they know there's risk when they leave, et cetera. You get them to sign on for a two-year contract or, or a three-year contract where they stay on part-time, they guarantee the customers, you can put in, you can be really creative and how you write up your offers when you're buying a business. So that's what I love about it the most is you can be super creative and set up a win-win for them and for you where they can go part-time, start retiring, pull themselves out of the business. In some ways, a lot of them want to stay in the business. They want to see it succeed. They're just tired of working in it 50 hours a week. They'd be okay to stay in it five or 10 hours a week as an advisor or as a part-time role to keep the business going, but they just want to be done with it. And a lot of the time, these business owners are, they've been making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year for 30 years. They've made smart investments. They're wealthy. Most of the business owners that I see selling businesses in value from, you know, let's say a million dollar business to a $5 million business, they typically have sales between five and 10 million in that range. And they've got lots of assets. They're rich. They're already multimillionaires and they're old. They want to enjoy their life. And so for them, if they get, you know, $2 million for the business or two and a half million dollars, it might not matter. In fact, in some cases, you could offer them a million and a salary over the next five years and the right to stay in the business in some way. And they're totally happy and they're totally you know on board with a lesser purchase price. Or you can do a vendor take back. Say, hey, how about you got all this equity in the business, you've got it fully paid off. And in most cases, business owners at that age don't have debt in their businesses that they own. And they wanna see the employees stay on. A lot of them are their family, friends, et cetera, that they've worked with for all these years. They wanna ensure that they still have employment. So you say, hey, I'll come and take over this business for you. I'll let you walk away. And I'll keep running, you know, mom and pop widget maker and I'll make it more efficient, whatever. I'll do this and that. I'll keep these things that you like. I'll keep these employees that you like. I even want you to stay on part-time to ensure the business succeeds. But how about I give you, you know, you want $3 million for this business. How about I give you 2 million bucks for this business, but I'll structured as $200,000 down right now. And you provide the financing for the rest. Once I've taken over for six months, I'll refinance. I'll take those financials to the bank and I'll buy you out. You set up a vendor take back, you get 6% interest. You're the bank, convince them basically that they're like holding a mortgage on their own business, which they love and trust. So they're probably going to do it. And it's one of those things where you can get involved in a private business and you can make astronomical amounts of return on investment and cash flow. And so that's why I love buying cash businesses, businesses that produce a lot of cash, uh, stable, consistent businesses. I'm not one to buy businesses that are super high growth or super high risk 
that have no revenue, like a Tesla that's never generated any profit. Um, hardly, you know, anyway, I'm not going to get into that, but, um, that's what I like about private businesses. So that was a great question. Thank you for asking it. Um, I almost should pay you $10 for asking that question because it really got me thinking and stimulating. Um, okay, so at what point in the real estate investing journey would you recommend private businesses with an active 60K salary? So do you mean, I guess I'm confused about that question as far as, do you mean when is the right time to start buying private businesses or when is the right time to start working in a private business making 60K? I'm assuming the latter and that, or the, the former, in that you, you're thinking you've got a couple of properties, when am I able to actually buy a business and what does the financing process look like? Well, you're gonna to wanna to go to a few business brokers. There'll be brokers at every single bank. There's also independent business brokers who specialize in lending against cash flow businesses. And they're looking for these opportunities and they'll lend at 3%, 3.5%, 4% against these businesses and like prime plus one, in some cases prime minus, depending how much they like the business and the size of it. But they'll look at, you'll put together a business case, you'll put together a business pitch, um, put together you know financials and pro formas and all that, and give it to the bank. And then they'll ask, they'll be questions and back and forth and they'll make sure you're a fit operator. They'll make sure that the business is sound and solid. They might want an audit on the financials. And then you can you get done all that stuff in your due diligence period. You go to the bank and you say, look, what do you think the business is worth and what are you willing to lend on it? And so they'll do an evaluation of the side based on cash flow in most cases, based on multiple of net operating income, they'll lend a certain amount. And then you can go to that bank, secure that line like a mortgage, a lot like a mortgage, but not as a General security of assets is what they're doing here. They're securing against the business's future cash flows and income and all the assets in the business. And you know, in a lot of cases, you might have to put 20% down, 25% down, but you can buy a business. And that's basically how you do it. So why invest, why later in your journey? Because you've heard me say that before, that it's hard to buy businesses. Like everyone would just buy businesses they could, if they could, right out of school, right out of business school, because you know it's the best return on, on your investment. Um, and it's also high risk. But I would recommend get the experience first because if you start a business at 22, you'll be naive and you'll make mistakes and you might, it might blow up in your face and you might end up owing the bank a huge pile of money and the business might fail. So I would say, I would say the more experience you have, the better. Um, it's better to wait if you can. You know, if you can work in accounting or consulting or in some field where you can build skills that are transferable to running a business, that would be ideal. Uh, it also help the lender feel more confident in lending to you. When I went to my businesses, I said, look, I have a successful real estate portfolio. I have a high net worth. You know, here's the things that I've accomplished beyond just graduating from the Rich Ivy School of Business. Here's my profile. And that was a big piece of the lender, the, the bank, in this case, is one of the big five Canadian banks, feeling comfortable in lending us funds to buy this business was our track record, you know, my net worth. And I actually pledged my net worth against the loan. And that's what made them feel comfortable to give us, in, the, in this case, we put like, it was like 15% down. Um, you can end up refinancing a lot of that out, right? So that's where buying private businesses can be amazing. And I say, you know, where in the journey, wherever you're able and comfortable to take that kind of risk on and where the bank is willing to keep, take the chance with you. So a $60,000 a year job, they might worry that your full-time job is going to conflict with you running the business. They might say, Hey, we want you to quit the job and run the business. I don't know. It depends on the bank. It depends on the business. Uh, they might say, you know, it's about net worth really at the end of the day. They might say, hey, you've got a couple of properties here. We don't see enough net worth that we feel comfortable that you should segment and segue into buying businesses. We think we should stay with the real estate for a little while, build some net worth up and then go and do that. Uh, so it just depends really on, you know, it really depends on where you are in your journey. And I think there's no set number, but if you're buying say a $2 billion business, 
having a $2 million net worth would really make the field bank feel comfortable. But you know, you could have a $500,000 net worth with a couple of rental properties and maybe you can make the pitch to the bank and they would be likely to lend to you. It's really at the end of the day, like a commercial real estate deal. With commercial real estate, the commercial property, it does the talking for you. It's more about the property than it is about you. Um, so where you're buying like your first or second rental property, a duplex, they're looking at your income. With a 10plex, they're looking at the 10plex's income more than they care about your income. They care, can the property provide it? That's how they look at a business. Can the business provide and net of all these interest obligations and a sensitivity analysis of say 10 or 20% pullback when you take over, will there be enough cash flow to pay our debt? So if you're buying a $200,000 business that wants to, let's say the business, it has 200,000 in net operating income. That's the net net after all the expenses, et cetera. If it's generating $200,000 a year, and let's say it had 2 million in sales. So the net net is 10% profit margin. This is pretty common. See a lot of businesses generate 2 million in revenue. Their net net is $200,000 a year after all expenses, you know, salaries, you know, rents, overheads, et cetera, so forth. So $200,000 net income. That net income in most cases isn't, it has no debt attached to it because the previous owner owned it in cash. They built the business. They don't have any debt on the business. So you're going now to put a loan against this business when you buy it. And so you're going to have, let's say a $2 million, let's say you bought it for, that'd be way too much. Let's say you bought the $200,000 operating income business for $600,000. That'd be a pretty fair multiple. Three times uh, now operating income. And it's like, what? Uh, I guess like one third of, of sales. That might be a fair price. I've seen those types of, it depends on the industry. There's like, it, it's different for every industry. So I, I'm just throwing out a random number. But let's say it was a $600,000 business. And the business, bank made you put, let's say you're asking the bank, hey, can I put, $200,000 of my own cash down payment to buy this business. And will you bring me the other $400,000 I need to close this business? And let's say there's no vendor take back for simplicity. There might be a vendor take back too. You might say, I'm putting up a hundred, the vendor's putting up a hundred in a vendor take back and I want 400,000 from the bank. And you go to the bank and the bank says, the $100,000 vendor take back is gonna cost you $10,000 a year in interest. So they say the $200,000 net operating income and they say, when you take over, income might only be 150,000. Let's do a 25% reduction for sensitivity, for transition, et cetera, so forth. Let's discount the cash flow a little bit, discount the income a little bit. They might take a discount. It depends on the bank you're working with and the type of business. But let's say they take it down from 200 to 150. Plus now you need 10,000 deduction to pay the vendor for the vendor take back. And the bank is gonna lend you $400,000. $400,000 at 4% 4 is 16,000. Let's say it's 5% freezing math. It's $20,000 a year in interest. Is that right? 400,000 times 5%, $20,000 a year in interest. So. They're gonna take another 20,000 in interest right off the top too. They're gonna to say, now really now operating income isn't 150, it's not 140, it's really like 100 and, 120, let's say. It might even go a little lower. They might even say, hey, we need some principal pay down too. Are they gonna, is he gonna be able to pay back the $400,000 in say five years? When you're borrowing against a business, interestingly, the amortization terms are not near as long. So when you buy a real estate transaction or any real estate property, you're gonna get a 25 year amortization, 30 year amortization, very common to get a long amortization because buildings appreciate in value and it takes a long time to pay them back. When you buy businesses, no one knows where a business sector is gonna be in 10 years. It could be totally obsolete. And so you'll have situations where you're buying a business. And by the way, for the 86 people that were just tuning to this live stream, if you want more of this kind of talk, I'm gonna go here. I'm gonna talk about buying private businesses. I'm gonna talk about financing private businesses. If that's what people are interested in, I'm happy to do it. Uh, so it looks like people are actually reacting well and enjoying this kind of content. So I'm going to continue with it here um, for the next you know, 10 minutes or so. We'll keep going. I'll give you guys a 50 minute stream tonight. So I'll keep going with the financing. So the amortization tables, when you buy a private business, 
are between five and 10 years. That's typically what you're gonna see. So they wanna see the four, let's say the best case scenario, 10 year amortization. That's a business that they love. That's a business they think is stable and long-term going places. And the business manager that you're working with that's helping you get the loan, uh, they're like really confident in the business. They'll give you a 10 year amortization. That's on the long standard side. So 10 years of 400 grand means they want $40,000 a year back in principal pay down, plus they want $20,000 a year in interest. So they're gonna say on your $150,000 income, they're expecting $10,000 goes to the vendor to pay his interest. Then they're gonna expect another $10,000 probably in principal pay down back to the vendor. Then they're gonna assume that you're what, at 130 now? Then they're gonna assume the 60,000 they need to see there. So now you're down to like 70,000 in positive cash flow. So that's where they, in that deal, they'd probably be okay and they'd probably do the deal. But where there's businesses that have $100,000 in net operating income, let's say, on a two million sales, they're like, if you don't change the efficiency of this business in some way, there isn't enough juice there to pay down the mortgage pay down, to have the loan pay down for them, to give them the interest that they want, and the vendor have the interest in loan payable. So it's a big thing is, is servicing the debt. Can this business service the new debt you're trying to take on? So that's why I like to buy cash flowing businesses, because the bank doesn't want to lend on a business that doesn't have cash flow to service the mortgage pay down for them on their five-year amortization. If it's a five-year amortization, 400000 into into five years is like $80,000 a year in payback to the bank plus interest, right? It's another 20000 interest. You're $100,000 a year in cash flow gone to service those debts. And where you can find cash flow in businesses that make sense, it can be the best thing in the world. And so what are you looking for? You're looking for cash flowing businesses. You're looking for businesses you can take to the bank and the bank will want to see. And so there's your lessons for today on how it's different financing a business versus financing. And I look at a cash flowing business a lot like commercial real estate. They're not a lot different. A 20 unit building is like its own business in a lot of ways. It's just, you can't fire your customers. That's one of the terrible things about real estate in Ontario is you're legislated, you're forced by law to have a customer that you can't fire, that could be a dick to you, that could not even pay you, and you still have to service them, to keep giving them the product, even if they don't pay. It makes no sense. In a grocery store, they have to pay for the service. And you know, like if you don't pay your phone bill, they cut your phone off. You don't pay for your food, they let you starve. You don't pay for your water, they shut it off to your house. But housing, oh, it's privatized, privatized landlords. Forget landlords, and they can, they can foot the bill for rent. It's the only legal theft in Canada, uh, in Ontario specifically. It's, it's terrible. Um, that's why I'm anti-landlording as a business. It's a hard business to run. It's, it's one of the worst, one of the worst, one of the least forgiving, least rewarding businesses I can think of. Um, that's why I outsource property management. It's a tough job and the pay isn't good either. Most property managers make 25 bucks an hour. So it's, it's tough. Anyway, I got 76 people in here. Where are we gonna go next? Let's go for another question. Let's pick something out, pick something good. 43 minutes into the stream, I'm going to find something good for you guys. Scrolling through the questions here. Um, there's a quick question there. Trevor says, nice fall sweater. Thank you. I appreciate that. I've had this sweater for a few years. It's a bit, uh, bit ratty. I got it for Christmas from one of my in-laws. Is it better inve invest in the distance to get cheaper properties and therefore less of a mortgage or invest locally where prices are, say, $600,000 to $800,000? So that's the age-old tough question, I think is where do you invest? Um, do you invest you know, in a faraway market that looks very exotic and beautiful or do you invest close to home where the cap rates aren't as good? And I personally am an invest at home kind of guy. That's just who I am. That said, we've got a property in Florida. I've got a, little, a couple of properties outside of London too. Primarily my real estate portfolio is in 
London where I live. It just so happens London has decent cash flow. And so I got the best of both worlds in that I ch chose to move to London uh, and, and sort of got, uh, you know, investing in the right market. And I sort of made this my business. Uh, who disliked? I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, there's always going to be someone who's anti-business, you know, anti-capitalism or whatever. The anarchists jump in and, and they like to see that, you know, rent is free and that the heads of, you know, anyone who's employing people are chopped off or something. I don't know. They want to see the economy spiral into the shitter. They want to see how socialism really plays out. They go look at Venezuela, Zimbabwe, or freaking any other socialist country that doesn't have large natural resources to keep their economy afloat. Okay. What are some first, some things to, I should watch out for when I'm buying my first off-market deal from a wholesaler? And by the way, I will circle back to the other question in a second here. I'm just thinking about my answer. Uh, Jordan, some things to worry about when buying off-market wholesalers. Most sellers that sell off-market are selling off-market because their house has something wrong with it. There's a structural issue that they know about, something, some reason they don't want to go on the market. And sometimes the wholesaler doesn't figure out what that issue is. Sometimes the seller doesn't disclose and there's no regulation of the wholesaling industry. So there's a lot of garbage that sells wholesale, a lot of garbage that sells off market. And some of the off market stuff that you're seeing being peddled these days, especially in Southwestern Ontario, where, you know, McKeever and I have talked about wholesaling so much. And a lot of us, you know, Ben included have sold this idea that wholesaling is this amazing thing. Um, there's so many wholesalers now that you're seeing the greed in the wholesale you know, segment of the market. There's just, I haven't seen a lot of good deals off market. I've seen people selling stuff with $60,000 wholesale fees. They're selling stuff that's close to, like I've seen better deals on MLS. A bad realtor lists a property and poorly markets it. And it's a better deal sometimes than what the wholesaler is offering off market. And in some cases, the off market properties come with terrible tenants that you spend a year fighting with that cost you thousands or they have a you know, major issue that you have to deal with. So what are the major things to look out for when you're buying a wholesale property? Because not all of them are bad. I've bought lots of properties off market. But one, do your due diligence and make sure you get a home inspection. Super important. A lot of the wholesale deals, they walk you through like, hey, um, we're pretending that we're buying this. So you got to go in really quick, 30 minutes, pretend you're a contractor. And so you're rushed through seeing the property. That's mistake number one. Spend your time. Get a home inspection. Spend that time and really do your due diligence on that property, especially if it's off market. If it's on market, you have recourse. You can sue the realtors. If they knew about you know, foundation leaks or major issues, they're liable. The wholesaler isn't liable. They're like, hey, I'm just assigning this deal to you. I, I, there's no, RICO doesn't regulate me. There's no recourse. I have no insurance. You can't go after me. Uh, so you can get screwed in the off-market segment really easily. So just be careful. Um, that's the thing to look out for in the off-market wholesale real estate category is there's just a lot of hacks. And uh, because the industry is unregulated and there's no way to, there's no accountability, then this kind of stuff happens. And to be honest, the process of wholesaling you win for like an hour and you lock a property up under contract. Like even if I was wholesaling, I don't know if the property is a foundation issue. I, I didn't do a home inspection. I don't know. Um, so in some cases, the wholesalers themselves are just trying to sell this paper. They have no idea the quality of the house. And so that's where you just gotta be careful guys when you're buying off market properties and be careful. A lot of, off, I've been talking to appraisers. A lot of people are selling off market properties at insane prices. Privately, they're selling stuff for like, above market and people are getting duped like hey it's off market it must be a good deal not necessarily true in a lot of cases it's not true 
when there's two realtors involved, they net, like the guy who's working for you, the buyer's agent, he's fighting to get the price down. The seller's agent's already, or the listing agent has already fought with the seller to bring them down their price, right? So there's been a lot of negotiations already happening. There's other people in the market competing and driving the price down if the product's bad. But in the wholesale space, they can create this coveted off-market property and get multiple offers in some cases with no due diligence and no background on the property. And so just be careful, guys. The same thing on MLS too. Just, just be careful. Um, you know, you can buy stuff with multiple offers and remove your conditions and be screwed. So that's where I just would say, be careful. Um, there are great deals off market, but wholesalers are now getting a little more greedy. The market's extremely saturated. And so there aren't as good of deals as there once was. There were times where people come to me, you know, in the beginning before wholesaling was well known, I remember wholesalers were fighting for $5,000 wholesale fees, trying to justify that their piece of paper is worth five grand. And I had a guy come to me with a $100,000 below market property and was fighting, like, please can I have five grand? Because people didn't know what to ask for. I had wholesalers come to me for asking for $3,000 cash. They're like, hey, it only talk me, I spent five hours getting this deal under contract. It's my neighbor's uncle's property. I'd be happy to wholesale for five grand. But now that wholesaler sees that, you know, I'm not gonna name any names, but other people in the market are doing $50,000 wholesale fees and they're getting greedy. And now everyone's like, oh geez, now I can spend, I get 30K for five hours of time. I get 40K wholesale fee. To a, it's an assignment fee to hand this contract over. And that's, that's egregious. It's, it's disgusting. Um, there should be some regulation and I think there should be some, with the increased competition, we should see fees dropping, but the market is so hot that it's easy for wholesalers to get rid of properties. So soon I think that we're gonna see, you know, I, I think we are going to see a time where wholesalers are gonna have properties that they can't get rid of and they're gonna start dropping their fees down and go back to the seller because they can't sell it. And they're gonna be able to go, can someone mute this person? There's profanity, I'm gonna mute this person right now. How do I remove them? There, oh. One of my monitors get on this and mute this person. I can't figure out how to do it. All right, put them on timeout. Cool. Okay, um, back to the stream here. You know what? I'm actually really thankful, by the way, for, for people coming in and, and being haters because there's nothing better, nothing more of a compliment than having you know, a hater jump onto your stream. It means you've made something of yourself. It means you're, people are watching, right? Like if no one's hating on your stuff, you're not out there. And so in some ways I'm, uh, I'm thankful for those people who jump in and provide the opportunity to, for all of us to see. Just found you on YouTube, loving it so far. Thanks Isaac, appreciate that. I don't do any new videos, so it's hard for people to discover me. Um, I don't even keyword, um, I don't put any keywords in on any of my live streams, which I should, I really should. Um, I wish I had my, one of my moderators on, but it is what it is. Okay, one more question here. I'm gonna wrap up the stream pretty soon here. I'm a young entrepreneur and I need help starting, any advice? Well, if you give me a targeted question, I could provide some insight. Um, Mrs. Mercy, it's tough, right? It depends on whether or not, like what segment you're in. Probably one of the best things you could ever do would be just live super frugally, like live on noodles and ramen, um, you know, at home, like Mr. Noodles. That's what you gotta do, you gotta live on that and just invest everything back into the business, invest your time and just build yourself up. Uh, at the end of the day, that's, that's the key thing. If I have any of my moderators, I have like three moderators that I've promoted. I don't think any of them are on tonight, but if any of my moderators are watching, just keep an eye out. 
to your point, Mike, in 2020, the median household income in the United States was $68,000. And that's, Trevor, great point. I just saw that come up, the uh, point we were talking about earlier about median income. Median household means the entire household. Like, if you live with mom, husband, and wife, that's everyone's income combined, right? Geez, someone's sharing this in a group, and we're just getting a bunch of people jumping on. This is, this is troll. I actually appreciate it. Um, YouTube will promote videos that get a lot of comments. So that's actually a huge advantage for us. If, even if someone smashes the dislike button, like that's cool. It still lets YouTube know people are engaging in the content and engaged in content gets promoted out to more of my subscriber base. So it's actually a net win when they comment. Um, it just clogs up the chat at the end of the day. William says, hey Mike, thank you for kindly taking the time to share. What have you been able to do for your family? It's been very inspiring. Oh, thank you, appreciate that. And I have a lot more that I wanna do for my family and extended family, so stay tuned. Keep on grinding, take up those water pulling side jobs Mike is talking about. There you go, those are pro tips right there. I'm trying to pick out the best questions here. Selling covered calls is a nice way to make your gold stock cash flow. Now, that's a fair point. Gold does not cash flow, like Bitcoin doesn't cash flow. I'd probably rather um, do covered calls on something like you know, cryptocurrency as opposed to holding it, because holding it doesn't provide any cash flow. Short-term maturity dates, out of the money, selling insurance to speculators. Anthony, great point. Um, the thing about options trading that's great, or even um, like even spread trading is fantastic. Like buying um, you know, and, and living the spread sort of thing is another way you can guarantee no losses with options trading. Do I speak Portuguese? No, I do not. Sorry. I have been to Brazil though. Fantastic, uh, fantastic country. I spent some time in, um, in Belo Horizonte and in... Uh, in Rio. And it was great. Uh, we went there for our honeymoon in 2014, actually. All right. I think I'm going to pick one more question. Um, I want to create some sort of sustainable e-commerce business. E-commerce is tough, but can be very, very lucrative. Uh, I'll do one more. On the topic of wholesaling, I like this one that Gerald put in. And by the way, if I missed your question and I didn't get to it, because there's a lot of questions I couldn't get to today because I had to prioritize the super chats. Uh, talking about the question, if I missed your question, I've seen questions pop up here. If I missed them, save them. And then when the video is done, post them in the comments section for everyone to see. And I will respond in similar fashion that I do here, but in a typed response for everyone to see and for the benefit of everyone. So that would be awesome if you could save your question now in a notepad or something and then repaste it after, uh, after the stream. So you're talking about how do you find properties off market? I lost my spot, here it is. Gerald Manchury says, how do I, any advice on finding rental properties before they hit the market? I found properties typically through Zillow and Redfin. That's more in the US. However, by the time I see it, there are multiple offers over listing. Again, the market's crazy and a lot of us YouTubers have you know, sort of shared all of the good nuggets on how to find properties. And so you can go follow a wholesaler and they'll tell you all the strategies they're using to buy off market properties so you can copy them and emulate them. But strategies that used to work more effectively, they still sort of do, is the tried and true door knocking, flyer dropping, um, bulletin board posting, online, Kijiji, Facebook are still fantastic places. People who hate realtors or are cheap trying to save money on a realtor will post on Facebook Marketplace. Very common place to see houses listed. Uh, Kijiji, if you're in Ontario, probably Craigslist, if you're in the US, you'd see a lot of people posting there. That's a great place to find leads. I've seen houses pop up and then the buyer took the house down and I troll it. I used to troll it every day when I was really hungry to find deals. I'd be trolling it twice a day. And I'd see an ad pop up and they'd take it down. They get a couple people reach out and they take off the listing. 
change their mind, don't want to sell. That's okay. Gets your foot in the door. So in a lot of cases, you can find deals that way. Um, it's a great, great way to find deals. But another way is just offer to pay people. Say, hey, I'll pay you $2,000 or $5,000 cash. If you can give me a referral to someone who wants to sell a house, if you end up leading to that sale, I'll give you $5,000 cash. Most of the wholesalers give 500 bucks or a thousand bucks. So if you're not a wholesaler and you're a private individual looking for a good deal, say, hey, I give you up to $5,000 if you give me the right deal. If Aunt Joe sells you sells me your house, I'll give you $5,000 cash for the referral. You go to the neighbors, say, hey, if you hear of anyone who's looking to sell their house, let me know before it hits the market and I can give you up to $5,000 cash as a referral fee. And you'd be surprised how many people are motivated by money and will give you a lot of leads that way. So that's a fantastic way to get leads. I just, I used to, at a time, I was telling everyone that. If you know of a deal, let me know. We actually bought a property because of a lead that a painter had, a painter of mine was like, hey, I heard you give cash for deals. My uncle's estate or whatever is selling this property in London. Do you want to pick it up? And it's a six bedroom property. Long story short, I actually JV'd on it and the JV partner cut me out and they still have the property and I got paid out like eight grand. <laughs> it's kind of a joke. Uh, it was an insult really at the end of the day, but that was a really good deal. It was like a hundred thousand under market and they were, they got paid out. So that's an example right there of how letting your trades know. I let all my painters and you'd be surprised how many people your painter knows and your, your property manager knows and your, you know, your flooring guy knows. And so just letting them know, Hey, you could make, you know, the money of painting three houses by just letting me know if someone who you hear is going to be selling their house and like, Hey, you're painting. And he's like, Hey, I'm actually painting a house. Uh, another painter told me, Hey, I'm painting a house and it's going on the market. I hear in the next couple of months, it's a flip. You want to get it, take a look. So people send me leads that way all the time. It's a fantastic way to get leads. It's just start talking to the local trades because they're the people getting the houses ready for sale. The painters and the flooring guys and the property managers. They know what the investors who are pissed off, who want out, who are tired of managing the tenants. That's the people you call if you want to get leads. I think the flyer route is, is milked. Like McKeever and the whole team in London have hit and, uh, and the other wholesalers like DCI and all the other guys in town, they've already hit every house 10 times with flyers. There's no point in sending a flyer. Like, some of my houses have got like literally 10 wholesale flyers in, and they're all the same. So that strategy doesn't work when everyone's done it. Uh, so try things that people aren't doing. And I got lots more up my sleeve, but I can't give all my tricks away in one stream or you're not gonna come back next week. So I'll see you guys all next week, live 7 p.m. Eastern, and I'll see you all in the comments and on Instagram at my grocer. I post six times daily and I'm always accessible and available. Thank you all so much for watching. You know the secret to unlocking a wealthier you. There's three levers in your control of your financial future. Spend less earn more, and maximize returns on the difference. It's what you spend, it's what you earn, and it's the returns on the difference. Bye, everyone. Have a good one. Thanks for watching.